So great. Let's get started then with the questions and um, So the first one is from Jason. Yes, and uh, Jason asks, in TMI, you advocate a combination of concentration and insight practice, whereas in MCTB, Daniel advocates separating the two practices. However, in stage seven, you give two separate practices, close following and cultivating the pleasure jhanas. Uh, clearly, they both require some level of concentration and insight, but close following seems to be more of an insight practice since it involves investigation of the sensations, breaking them apart to see impermanence, whereas jhana is more of a concentration practice in which one is absorbed in the breath as one object, which can't be investigated, broken apart without breaking the absorption. Uh, in stage seven plus, how should one decide how much investigation to apply? Okay, there's uh, there's a number of terminological things uh, here that uh, I think I think some clarification will uh, make it easier to answer these questions. First of all, the term concentration. Uh, I would like to refer to that as either samadhi or attentional stability. Uh, and so uh, uh, what, what would restate this as a combination of uh, cultivating attentional stability and uh, doing a practice which is intended to induce a, an insight experience, which may or may not actually give rise to insight. So there are, there are practices that, are, that have been uh, developed because they uh, are conducive to insight. Now, um, attentional stability is necessarily a part of uh, insight practices like the one particular insight practice that's being referred to here. Uh, and that is one where you're using attention rather than mindfulness. Well, a little clarification here. Uh, when I say mindfulness, I really mean uh, uh, metacognitive introspective awareness. Well, at least, at least, uh, in the most general sense, it's, it's extrospective and introspective awareness. But um, to become fully developed mindfulness, uh, it is metacognitive introspective awareness. So um, both are necessary for anything to be an insight practice, although they aren't clearly identified as such. Now, as far as a practice that leads to insight goes, okay, uh, the idea of uh, close, of investigating sensations and breaking them apart to see impermanence. Now that is one 
way of precipitating insight into impermanence with overtones of uh, insight into the impermanence of the self. And um, the use of attention in this way uh, it, it is just uh, specific to this particular way, this, to this particular insight practice. So properly speaking, there are all kinds of insight practices that don't utilize attention in this way, and some that depend much more uh, upon uh, mindfulness, powerful mindfulness, and uh, either attention is not involved or attention plays an ancillary role. Yeah. And so basically there's everything in between. But in, the, in these practices, uh, um, doing very intense investigation with attention uh, and seeing things, if you did not have the mindfulness to absorb the, in, the, uh, uh, the nature of the information that was being given rise to, then it would not be, uh, uh, it would not be an insight practice. So to make these kinds of distinctions uh, uh, is, 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 I think, illusory and confusing. One cannot do this kind of practice without developing uh, a degree of attentional stability. So we look at it this way, and um, there, there are practices to develop attentional stability, and they usually develop uh, mindfulness together. And so this distinction between a concentration practice and an insight practice is a bit problematic. We should think more in terms of what is any particular practice trying to do and how does it fit into a lar larger scheme of things? Okay, so anyway, your question, Jason, clearly they both require some level of concentration and insight, obviously. The close following seems to be more of an insight practice since it involves investigation of sensations. Yes, uh, and that is the case. And jhana is more of a concentration practice in which one is absorbed uh, in the breath as one object, which can't be investigated, broken apart without breaking the absorption. Yes, jhana is a powerful insight practice, but it does not work on the basis of, uh, of using attention to uh, reductively deconstruct uh, things. Uh, that's not how it's used. And as a matter of fact, in, uh, in the jhanas, uh, I know there's a lot of different people who have struggled with interpreting the words vitaka and vichara, but what they are quite simply uh, and is our directed and sustained attention. And of course, people equate attention with consciousness and they think, well, how could, if Wataka and Wachara fall away after first jhana, then somebody must be unconscious. And that doesn't make sense. Therefore, we have to find some other thing. So people come up with all kinds of crazy things, you know, directed and applied uh, effort, 
uh, directed and applied thought, you know, thought and investigation and all kinds of weird things for these things. But it really is attention. And attention falls away in the early jhanas, usually after first jhana, according to classical description. And it is a practice by which as you move through the jhanas, you're experiencing the mind essentially at different it's like peeling the layers off of an onion and you're experiencing the mind uh, through uh, powerful mindfulness in the, the second, third, fourth jhanas and the form, formless jhanas rather than through attention. And uh, these, can be, these can be made into an insight practice and I think we're probably the predominant insight practice at the time of the Buddha. So, uh, yes, they can be used to develop stability of attention. Um, as soon as you have enough stability of attention to enter a jhana, uh, like a light jhana, like the whole body jhana, um, or a little more stability of attention to enter into the pleasure jhanas, then what this does is, is helps to condition your mind to that kind of stability. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, the flow aspect of jhana produces uh, an, an incredible stability of attention. And so practicing the jhanas help to develop a stability of attention that's not dependent upon the flow state. It's independent of it. So, um, how, you know, you go on to say, uh, in stage seven, Plus, how should one decide how much investigation to apply? Well, uh, since uh, everything in stage seven on, these are insight practices that are being used to help uh, further develop both mindfulness and help you uh, actually learn to use the, the pro profoundly stable attention uh, when you get to when in stage seven, you have what's referred to as upachara samadhi or access samadhi, because you can sustain exclusive attention, but it takes effort. And when it becomes effortless, it becomes apana samadhi, and that's basically uh, the qualitatively uh, the the uh, stability of attention, the samadhi that is qualitatively the same as what you achieve when you enter the jhanas. The jhanas help you learn to develop this. Now you can use this. And all of the practices that are offered in stage seven plus, they uh, serve, uh, they are insight practices. But don't worry about whether or not, uh, uh, um, well, how to put this, whether or not any particular practice involves using attention as a part of the investigation, uh, number one, and number two, whether or not that uh, attention is used reductively and deconstructively rather than just a simple observation through attention, which allows analytical powers of attention to, to uh, absorb the information from it, but there doesn't need to be an active deconstruction taking place. So don't worry whether either one of those two 
or both of them is present in a practice because all of these other practices are insight practices. If you look at the practices in stage eight, momentary attention, uh, following the links of dependent arising and things like that, you are using attention, but you're not using attention analytically. You're using attention as, a, as the powerful spotlight that brings this information uh, to uh, makes it available to all of the unconscious subminds that are participating in this process. When you get to practices like um, um, still point witness, where attention is actually quite minimalized, and then you get into practices like meditation on the mind, where uh, the way you enter into that state is largely by releasing attention anytime it begins to uh, coalesce around an object. So uh, the simple answer is these practices in stage seven and all of the practices subsequently uh, are both uh, attentional stability practices and insight practices. And insight practice is not defined by attentional analysis. Uh, that's only a single approach um, that is used in certain circumstances. I hope, I hope that clarifies that point for you, Jason, and for everybody else. I know it's gonna come as a surprise to some of you who have been indoctrinated in the idea that insight practice is essentially something, uh, something that is involved, primarily involves attention and is primarily analytical. Um, and in fact, there's almost no mention of this kind of insight practice in the suttas. Um, so. I guess it's just that like, sometimes it seems like you can emphasize more the, the smoothness and like the pleasurable smoothness that's kind of leading towards jhana. And then sometimes, or you could uh, go the other way and um, just break down everything and continue going mm -hmm. down the more, like looking more into impermanence and it's not necessarily yeah. as pleasurable, right? Um, so mm -hmm. I was just kind of wondering, you know, how does one decide which one is more appropriate at any given time? Well, I uh, think in terms, what I would recommend is if you're following TMI, think in terms of what are the objectives uh, of that particular uh, stage of the practice and uh, where are you in terms of those objectives and what, which practice might be most helpful to you. Now, if you want, if you want to uh, work towards insight, like insight is going to arise spontaneously sometime in this period. But if you want to more intentionally direct yourself towards insight, then um, I haven't really given detailed instructions on how to use uh, jhana as an insight practice. So I would choose for stage seven that you use uh, uh, that you use the close following and the uh, uh, in investigation of uh, symbolic and non-symbolic thought uh, because these uh, actually the close following is, is the one that is most likely to trigger uh, an insight experience and the development of insight 
in at stage seven. Yeah, thank you. You're welcome. Glad I could clarify that. Um, let's see the next question. Oh, um, Chilidasa. Uh, mm -hmm. uh, uh, do, do you have any way of putting your computer on a solid surface because it's sort of bouncing around and moving up or oh, yeah. requires some surgery? Yeah, I can do that. Uh oh, <laughs> I've sent you on a mission. All right. And position it so that you can yeah. see me. <laughs> yeah, occasionally you drop off at the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, right. Okay. Yeah, so, thanks. For, on behalf of people like me with weak stomachs who get a little queasy when it's bouncing around. Sorry, I didn't mean to make you car stick. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm a cheap date in that respect. <laughs> okay. Well, let's look at the, what the next question is here. Uh, Stephen Cartledge, I believe during a Q&A you mentioned uh, that exploring hypnagogic or hypnagogia uh, mindfully would be interesting and maybe beneficial. Do you have suggestions on how to mindfully study hypnagogic states? Relating to this, do you see any correlation between them? Uh, well, let's answer the first question. Uh, um, you go to sleep every night, and if you practice being mindful going to sleep at night, then uh, you're going to experience uh, hypnagogia and, and hypnagogic images as. Uh, as a part of that. So th that, that provides you with an ideal opportunity to, um, to study hypnagogia. Now, depending on what stage of the practice you're in, um, you may experience that uh, as, uh, uh, with the onset of uh, strong dullness. Um, you know, as progressive subtle dullness moves into strong dullness, hypnagogic imagery arises. Um, and if you want to explore that, I, I'm really curious what your reasons would be for exploring that. I can think of a lot of good reasons. I'm not questioning that it's not a good idea because I think it's a very good idea to practice mindfulness both when you're going to sleep and when you're waking up in the morning. And, and you'll have images in the morning too, which are hypnopompic rather than hypnagogic, but same idea basically. Um. See, because of some physical pain, I have to really meditate more in an easy chair. So even though it doesn't feel like dullness per se, you know, I end up at some point falling asleep due to medications and different things. So it's sort of like the states of meditation go from, you know, from a state of, you know, mindfulness or watching the breath steadily and then all of a sudden, you know, I'm waking up and, and having those hypnagogic type images. So I'm just thinking, is there a way to, when you were in that twilight zone, is there something to, and, and, and also I have interest in uh, developing lucid dreaming. So I was thinking mm -hmm. that the, the investigation of reality between those three states, you know, you know, mm -hmm. of interest to me right now. Right. Yes, well, uh, practicing mindfulness before you go to sleep uh, or as you fall asleep is also conducive to uh, lucid dreaming, but there are other techniques that, that uh, 
but I would, yeah, that would be great to explore that. So you're, you want to look at the three states of what it's like to be awake, what it's like to be in that transition towards sleep and in the dream state. And that sounds like a really, uh, a really great idea. Um, what, uh, if I look at this as a practice question, though, I, uh, okay, so you have pain and you're on medications and uh, it produces a tendency to dullness. And um, what, what I think you need from the point of view of practice is to develop the ability to distinguish what is a, a, a highly alert state of mind where you have a lot of clarity, uh, vividness in your perception uh, from those uh, dull or semi-dull states of mind where it is not as clear and where certain distortions become like hypnagogic hallucinations or dream, semi-dreams and things like that. So um, from a practice point of view, I think that's, that's, that, that's what it sounds to me like you're asking is how to learn to clearly distinguish between those states. Well, uh, I, would, I would focus on things that are indicative of a high state of alertness and uh, become familiar with that. Now, I think hypnagogic, a hypnagogic state is obviously a state of dullness. Although there is a, there is a kind of mindfulness that, uh, that we talk about in the seventh interlude of the mind illuminated that allows you to sustain a high level of mindfulness in a hypnagogic state. But I think in terms of uh, having, the, having the particular obstacles you do to maintaining uh, a high state of uh, alertness and mindfulness and uh, clarity of uh, attention, that uh, the approach is probably better to focus on what it's like, what are the different degrees and different levels of, of alertness and the uh, quality of perception that's associated with them. Is that helpful in regard to that question? Am, am I on track with what your needs are? You're muted. So you're you're muted, Steve. Couldn't hear what you said. Yes, it gives me something to work on. Uh, I, I, I'm thankful. That's I, that's what I was looking for. Okay, there's another part to your question here. Uh, do I see any correlation between uh, the the synesthesia uh, uh, between synesthesia and seeing the breath? Uh, as the in the uh, in the way the power jhanas are practiced, and uh, how does it compare to the synesthesia of an acid trip, seeing the music? Well, that's an interesting. That's an interesting question. Um, it's a. I I find that uh, um, the merging of the breath with the luminous phenomena that um, uh, is used by uh, 
Bach and, and teachers in, in, in his tradition is an interesting little twist on things. Um, and probably there's similar, I'm just guessing, uh, probably the similar brain mechanisms that are taking place to produce that kind of synesthesia because, um, and it is probably something similar to what can happen uh, with uh, LSD. Um, it's just, I just see it as an example of interesting phenomenology. Um, but uh, for those who are academically interested in the exploration of, of uh, various perceptual effects, it's probably a much uh, uh, deeper and more exciting question, and I don't have much answer to beyond what I've just told you. So, okay, let's see. Um, Boris, uh, uh, yes. Uh, is Boris here? Oops. Yes, I'm here. Oh, good, great, Boris. So, um, in one of your Q&A, you answered question about formal and informal practices from second to third path. It was insanely helpful for my practice. What practices you recommend for um, third to fourth path? Um, yeah, well, that'll be an interesting thing for us to talk about for a few minutes. Um, in by when you have achieved uh, third path, you have overcome craving for basically what's referred to as the eight worldly dharmas, uh, uh, gain, loss, pleasure, pain, fame, infamy, infamy, praise, blame, you know, these, these things. Um, so there are uh, so, in in terms of being a state, uh, free freedom from craving, and uh, freedom from the dukkha that is associated with it, uh, it's quite uh, it's quite a wonderful attainment. But what remains is that uh, our our meditator who's achieved third path, she knows she's not. She knows that. She that there isn't a self, but she still feels that sense of being a separate self. And uh, so that's present as a part of third path experience is, you know, and as it's expressed in um, one of the suttas where uh, someone who's on third path is talking to some younger bhikkhus and, and explains that even though I know it's not true, I still the I, I still experience I me and mine, so um, so it's a place of being freed of almost every kind of delusion except for the the, the having the knowledge that you're not a separate self but feeling like you're a separate self. Now another thing that is a part of this is. Um, uh, since there is still a feeling of separateness, then uh, on third path, one experiences on the one hand, uh, the godlike experience of, uh, of uh, being in a, in a state of 
peace and not being disturbed by things of the world and uh, so on and so forth. It's associated with a powerful sense of, uh, uh, of uh, blissful happiness. But the meditator on third path at some point begins to experience a kind of dukkha, dissatisfaction. Uh, and this is a result of a tension that develops, a tension between being and non-being, or sometimes as is put, tension between uh, craving for uh, uh, existence in the formless realms versus uh, craving for existence in the form realm. Um, this is, and from the vantage point of somebody who is not uh, being driven by craving, this form realm, this sense realm, it can be appreciated as uh, an exquisitely wonderful and beautiful uh, thing to have the opportunity to experience. Uh, it, is, it is indeed experiencing it uh, as it is, uh, as an aspect of suchness reflected in our own minds. But the other thing is, uh, remember our third path uh, uh, meditator, um, she knows she's not separate. And despite the, uh, the wonderful the ability to uh, in enjoy and see things from the perspective that she's attained, She's very well aware that this world is filled with incredible amounts of suffering. And uh, so that is why there is this tension between being and non-being or wanting to withdraw from the world of form into some sort of godlike formless realm where there is no suffering. But, but that is unresolvable because she knows that, that, you know, even though she feels separate, she's not separate and, and any kind of escape is not going to change what's bothering her. So basically she's in a state of existential angst. She has the fetter of feeling like she's a separate self, which gives rise to uh, the uh, phenomenon of, uh, craving uh, for being or non-being or, uh, you know, the, the, the conflict between being a part of uh, all of this suffering uh, and at the same time being apart from it, being a part of it and apart from it. Interesting linguistically there, what I just said, but um, in terms of how this gets re resolved. Um, so these four of the five fetters that you want to overcome in, uh, in the practice in uh, a third path is, uh, of course, this uh, ongoing sense of being a separate self, the craving for uh, being and, and non-being, the restlessness or agitation, the existential dukkha, 
that is associated with, that arises from this craving for being and non-being. Uh, and the, the fifth is just, uh, is uh, uh, the fifth fetter is ignorance. And that what that means is it refers to uh, the complete falling away of all aspects of the delusion that uh, our meditator started out in. So if we understand, then this is the real value of the 10 fetter model. It helps to tell you what to do and what to work on and how to practice. So what is what you're looking for is to uh, is is for this sense of being a separate self to fall away, and uh, as a third path meditator, it does fall away at times, and there are practices that you can do uh, uh, that, uh, in particular. Uh, uh, are devoid of much in the way of sense of self. Um, for example, if you were to take the, the practice of experiencing the witness and bring it to its culmination, that's a way to do it. And the meditation on the mind, which uh, reaches, we reach a place where uh, the, uh, there is no sense of, uh, of a self involved in that anymore. In our daily lives, it's just a recognizing whenever this sense of self, uh, of being a separate self is present and observing it with mindfulness. As far as the craving for being a non-being, uh, what one needs to do is to uh, just observe, uh, the, the observe the way these cravings arise, what they arise in response to, and observe the, uh, the dissatisfaction, uh, the suffering that arises from them, and attempt to surrender. Remember, craving is resistance to what is. And so if you remember that craving is a resistance to what is, then you know how to deal with craving, even these kinds of uh, uh, very subtle by comparison to our uh, other cravings you know how to deal with these, which is to surrender to what is. The more completely you surrender to what is, the more you're gonna reach that culmination of the insights at that uh, third path, which allow for transition to fourth path. Now, the restlessness or tension that's present uh, Use that mainly, that's mainly a sign uh, to know that uh, you need to observe what, what happens and how your mind reacts to it and then surrender to whatever it was that triggered that craving to arise. So uh, the, main, the main way you use the fetter of uh, restlessness or dukkha, the, the, uh, the dukkha that results from craving for being and non-being, is this reminds you to send, surrender, surrender more and more completely. Um, it's very good to do practices. I mean, this in your daily life, it's extremely important that you're practicing uh, the way that uh, uh, the mindful review 
uh, provides you the instruction for. By third path, you have incredibly powerful mindfulness. You're observing your own mind and you can see whenever uh, there is some uh, aspect of this remaining sense of separation that is operating in your mind. And uh, so you can look at, the, you can, basically what I'm saying is you can, you can look at the fetters, you can look at the nature of it and you will know how to practice. And uh, you, some of the more advanced practices uh, like, uh, like overcoming, experiencing and eventually the falling away of the witness and, uh, and the meditation on the mind. These are all very good, but in your daily life, uh, practicing, practicing virtue, uh, practicing loving kindness, things like this, where what you are doing in those practices is you are minimizing the experience of being separate in any way. You are, you are increasing the sense of connectedness with everything else. And this is what uh, eventually the kind of insight that's going to arise. There's going to be a falling away of the sense of self and the insight sort of underlying all of the other insights are various aspects of non-duality. Non-duality of self and other, non-duality of mind and matter. I mean, that's what emptiness uh, points to, things like that. But the last non-duality, the insight into non-duality that is going to bring you across the threshold of fourth path is the non-duality of being and non-being. And this is rather, you know, what does that mean? Uh, a little bit hard to uh, explain, except that it's extremely obvious once, once you see it. Um, but maybe just a pointer to that is what is suchness? Suchness is everything that is, everything that has been, everything that potentially could be, everything that could be but isn't, uh, that might happen but won't. Uh, and it's also everything that couldn't happen as well. So within the totality of suchness, there is no such distinction as being and non-being. And fourth path is really dwelling in suchness. And so this kind of contradiction uh, uh, is completely dissolved in that. So I uh, hope that gives you some idea of the practices to follow if, you're, if you find yourself on third path. If you know where you're going, then you can tell whether you can choose your practices appropriately and you can tell whether they're taking you in the right direction or not. You will have an increased experience of, their, uh, of the falling away of that uh, sense of separateness. You will have uh, an increased, uh, you, uh, uh, appreciation of, well, all of the other insights are going to be deepening. So you're going to experience an increased appreciation of the significance of uh, everything as interconnected, everything as process, uh, the 
that all mental constructs are merely attempts by the mind to represent on very limited information a much greater reality. Um, all of this is going to help you bring you to that place of surrender. So the more the more you more easily you can surrender to what is, the closer you are getting to the culmination of uh, of the third path and transition to fourth path. Thank you. It was very wonderful to hear that. Uh, can I just elaborate a little bit? Uh, just a little remark. Uh, I um, uh, find that if I take awareness as object of my meditation in, uh, um, and then I can um, watch uh, that watcher, and uh, then I take watcher as my object, mm -hmm. and then it uh, dissolves, mm -hmm. and uh, I go to non-dual state. Mm -hmm. Like Rick, Rikpa, you can say that. Is this a um, good practice or? Yes, yes, oh, a very good practice, yes. Okay. Jared uh, asks, do you think there are any common misconceptions of the middle way? Well, <laughs> uh, by the middle way, Jared, are you referring to uh, are you using that as a, a euphemism for uh, Buddha Dharma, uh, as it's understood in the world, or do you mean something more specific by that? Probably the the Buddha Dharma perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's so packed with misconceptions. I mean the. The Buddha did nail it when he said that uh, that what he taught would it would degenerate over time, and it is it the it is riddled with misconceptions. Yes, um, and uh, we're at a time now where um, I, I think that we have the opportunity to. Uh, relieve ourselves of uh, many of those misconceptions, which is going to make it easier for people to uh, achieve insight and awakening. Uh, because most of those misconceptions in one way or another create new and unnecessary obstacles to, uh, to insight and, and awakening. So, you know, I, I could think of one in particular that makes a tremendous difference. And that's, if somebody is practicing Buddhism and their goal is insight and awakening, and they cling to the belief that there is some kind of essence to them, uh, something, uh, uh, some immaterial essence or their consciousness or mind stream or something like that, that uh, constitutes a self that is going to continue after the dissolution of the body. Uh, and 
what this what this does is it makes it so much more difficult to let go of the uh, uh, well the, yeah let's put it this way it makes it so much more difficult to realize anatta right and um, somebody who is uh, deeply indoctrinated in in the idea that there is some kind of uh, self uh, that would fit the description of reincarnation they might be able to drop that enough to uh, become a stream entrant so they, then they're living with an internal conflict of well i know that there's that there's no self in this mind in these five aggregates yet i still feel like a separate self so maybe my knowledge is incomplete in the some other kind of self and and so then they go looking for some other kind of self to rationalize that uh, and another huge misperception has to do with karma and uh, uh, the Buddha said that uh, when I say karma, I mean intention. And uh, it goes on to speak at a lot of length about intention. It is your intentions that give rise to your speech and action. And uh, those intentions that you act on uh, determine how you're going to respond uh, how you're going to respond to any given situation so they shape who you are so karma as the buddha used the word doesn't mean that what you do determines what's going to happen to you in the future in this lifetime or in some next lifetime yes there is causality and uh, your acts are going to have consequences, but they're consequences that can be understood on the basis of uh, physical causality, uh, you know, chemical causality, uh, psychological causality, mental causality, uh, things like that. But karmic causality is the way that we shape ourselves through the intentions that we follow. And it's so, uh, the fruits of karma are not about what happens to you, it's about who they happen to. And uh, through right intention, right thought and intention, uh, they will happen to a, a, somebody who has attained to a higher path of awakening. They'll, they'll happen to a bodhisattva who has uh, a significant degree of realization. If those intentions are of the wrong kind, then uh, that's not going to happen. And as a matter of fact, you're probably gonna go the other way. You're, you're going to become more immersed in the world of suffering. So um, the whole idea of karma, uh, just like the idea of reincarnation, these, these were ideas that uh, pre-existed the Buddhas. They were ideas that got incorporated into Buddhism because the Buddha took those ideas, redefined those terms, and used them in a highly specific way. So when we go back to understanding them, not in the way the Buddha redefined them, but in the original form, then um, they become obstacles to uh, our spiritual development. There, but um, yeah, the, the middle way of the Dharma, 
uh, an interesting comment from <laughs> Andrea, which is really true. Everyone thinks their way is the middle way. <laughs> That's the other thing about it. Yeah, uh, there are there. I, I suppose there's the extreme of nihilism leading to suicide at one end, and at the other end is uh, is uh, total self-destructive debauchery. <laughs> <laughs> and anything between those can be interpreted as a middle way of some sort. <laughs> so, yeah, kind of a fun question to address. Thank you. Uh, and Joel, I really enjoyed uh, seeing that uh, article. I'd love to read the original paper. Um, so Joel uh, posted and Maybe hopefully some of you read it, uh, uh, an article entitled, The Spotlight of Attention is, is More Like a Strobe, Say Researchers. And, uh, and there's a link to that. What I found, uh, well, it was fascinating the way they described it. Now they found the frequency of attention uh, in their study to be four that to arise uh, strobe on and off four times per second. Uh, and what happened between those strobings on and off, or let's say those moments of, of attention. So let, let's go to the abdominal description here. Between those moments of attention, what they described as happening is a broader perception of uh, everything else uh, that is going on around them. And of course, that is, that is awareness. So what they're describing here uh, is uh, it's moments of attention uh, alternating with moments of awareness. And I find that fascinating. Uh, something that's a little peculiar is that they come up with such a low uh, frequency for attention, but I, that's why I'd like to read the paper itself because I suspect it's the experimental design that uh, 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 that led to such a low rate of attention um, episodes of, of attention. But uh, it's fascinating that uh, this research is is being done and that. Uh, What's really fascinating is the way it's really, it's being interpreted, uh, recognizing that, that there's two different kinds, two different ways of perceiving that are alternating with each other in this study. Um, yeah, I, 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 I found that to be uh, a wonderful thing to know that people are working on that and are starting to, starting to go in the right direction with it. So thank you very much, Joel. And those of you that haven't, uh, I mean, how, how many of you have had uh, already seen this link and had read that article? Not very many of you. Yeah, you'll, you'll find it really interesting to see scientists um, actually uh, uh, describing what, uh, uh, what dates back to the, the time of the Abhidhamma, and which uh, is articulated in the mind, illuminated a lot of a lot of attention given to it. So, 
it's very validating, let's put it this way. <laughs> yeah. I just noticed that uh, Tatiana had posted a little comment here from the heart of the universe is pro the, or the heart of the universe is process. There's nothing to hold on to. Yes. Would you say that not one or not two, not one is what you are directing us to? And uh, yes, as a matter of fact, we'll go into some detail on that. But I think Katiana has a question coming up here anyway. Um, so I was really thinking um, when you um, were speaking about that, um, Prapancha comes up always and going beyond all symbols, language, concepts, and then emptiness, going beyond emptiness. And so you're peeling and unpeeling and unpeeling the layers and layers and layers. Um, and then finally realizing that whole process is what the cosmos is anyway. And it's like one giant spiral that has spirals within spirals within spirals the fractals that are repeating, repeating, and there is no beginning or ending, it's just continuous until you let go of everything. Now the idea is to, is to bring yourself to a place of uh, conscious understanding of that as best your human mind is capable of and dwelling in the place of that greater reality. Thank you so much. Um, next question in order here is Ferdy. Uh, so I'm at stage, at a stage where at most days after a few minutes, halfway through the four point transition, I got lots of meditative joy and tranquility going, which to me sounds like stage eight. The body is feeling really nice. Awareness seems expanded and I sense thoughts and feelings as vibrations most of the time. It feels natural to do the witness or meditation on the mind. If I do this, though, I will get subtle, uh, gross distractions after some time. When I try to do stage four, then I don't really feel sensations at the nose. Everything feels so expansive that it feels kind of forced to make these solid sensations. Um, I just want to clarify uh, with you, uh, Ferdy. Uh, are, are you saying that your normal practice state uh, is uh, corresponds to stage four? It's for you here. Yeah. Yes. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, I can. Okay. Um, so, no, it, it's um, so in some days I am stage four, but um, on, so on, on the days where my mind is really sharp, I am at stage eight, but the thing is that okay. then when I'm practicing at stage eight, it's it's uh, fun and, and going pretty good for some time, but then there's there comes a period where there are uh, like some thoughts are like getting past my mm -hmm. mindfulness, and then mm -hmm. I'm I'm in a state where I don't really know what what to do to get back to this uh, to stage eight. Mm -hmm. I see. Okay, so you. This is what it sounds like to me, and you can tell me if it makes sense to you. Um, it sounds like 
that you are able to do stage eight practices uh, and the quality that you described of that uh, really uh, with the reference to uh, tranquility in particular but to joy and it, it actually sounds like you're able to be in a state that corresponds to late stage eight almost in, into stage nine but that you have some problems sustaining it. And if I've described this accurately, would you say that's an accurate description? That, that uh, you're, yeah. you're, you're, like, okay. I would say so, yeah. So uh, look at, uh, let's, let's look at uh, what would, could be the explanation for the problems sustaining it and what we could do about that. So, um, what you're basically saying is that the effortless exclusive attention and uh, metacognitive introspective awareness that uh, you seem to be able to manifest is not sufficiently um, supported by the mind system uh, yet. So it's like being able to have uh, effortless exclusive attention, but not necessarily being able to stay in that place for very long periods of time. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I think All right. that's so what I, what I would suggest that you do is uh, to practice with the, uh, Practice in such a way that you can immediately detect uh, any arising of uh, uh, subtle or gross distractions, uh, any instability of your attention, and where you can likewise recognize uh, uh, any uh, diminishing uh, of your of, of the clarity and the intensity and the vividness of your perception and the practice that you're doing. Um, now you could, you could do this just going back to following the breath at the nose, like in stage seven, but you could also do this while doing some of these, uh, some of the other earlier stage eight practices, but putting the emphasis on uh, when you're doing these practice, the emphasis on being aware of uh, being extremely aware. And that's really what these practices are about in the first part of, of stage eight chapter. Being extremely aware of what attention is doing and being extremely aware of what the mind as a whole is doing. And so if you are aware of what the mind as a whole is doing, if you are aware of what attention is doing, then you should immediately see when the attention begins to alternate with something, or you should immediately uh, recognize when the, uh, uh, the quality of your perception is starting to show signs of dullness, where there's any kind of collapse in your introspective awareness taking place. And then, you know, correct for that. So uh, 
In other words, I think you need to do a little more work in making uh, uh, in making this state of uh, uh, of effortless exclusive attention and powerful mindfulness more stable. It's not stable. Make it more stable. How did you make it stable in the first place? By uh, simply being on guard for any manifestations of uh, distraction, being vigilant for any, uh, for any signs of distraction or dullness arising and immediately correcting for them until the point comes that you, it was not necessary to do so. So now what you're gonna do is something that's very similar to that. You're gonna start out and with uh, effortless attention, but you're, gonna, you're going to um, intentionally sustain a vigilant watch for any deviations from that. So you'll be kind of shifting from effortless to now you're maintaining vigilance in a, in a way that uh, you would expect not to have to in a state of effortlessness, but you're gonna do it anyway. And uh, uh, the result should be that, uh, that relatively quickly, I would expect, you're going to find that uh, uh, there's no longer any tendency for uh, dullness or distraction to enter in. Is that, is that clear? That's been clear. Yeah. I think that does helps. Makes so, sense to you? So, yeah. Yeah, it does. Um, so um, let me just paraphrase real quick. So I, I'm basically now setting the intention to to be really watchful and and yeah, watch mm -hmm. out for for distractions, right? And then I okay, perfect. Yeah. So you, you're basically you're basically doing a form of stage seven practice. I'm just suggesting that you, because you can start off with effortlessness, that you can, you, you can also use some of these other practices as well. All right, great, thank you. Yeah, you're you're welcome, and I think it's it's quite amazing that you have uh, that you're experiencing the joy and the tranquility. So uh, I, I I think you're you're well on your way in a very good way, and congratulations for that. You thank just, you have this one little weakness that's holding you back and won't take much to correct for that. Great, thanks. You're welcome, you're welcome. Okay, Marcel. When reading the Theravada suttas and also some Mahayana suttas, sutras, the practice of the jhanas seems almost central to the path. Sama Samadhi is even defined as the jhanas. Uh, what are your thoughts on how and why the jhanas became so obscured in most present-day traditions? Um, also, in TMI, they don't seem necessary for progress. So, could you comment on that? And uh, yes, that is something that is so very interesting. As yes, there is absolutely no question that almost the only references to meditation that you find uh, in the Buddha's own voice are to jhanas. And there are many, many places where he defines the characteristics of the jhanas and uh, enumerates the, uh, uh, the jhana factors and how they uh, fall away with uh, the different jhanas. So 
we find ourselves in a world with many different forms of Buddhism, um, none of which, uh, none of which seem to practice much in the way of jhana anymore. It's uh, curious, a very curious thing that uh, people call themselves Buddhists. They study the suttas. Uh, they teach dharma and meditation. And yet they kind of ignore this huge discrepancy <laughs> between what the Buddha is referring to and uh, what's happening, you know, what, what, what they're actually teaching, what practices they've done, so on and so forth. Well, it's probably a variety of factors. Um, what we do know is that uh, with the Vasudhi Maga, which came to be uh, the pretty much the foundation of Theravadan Buddhism, uh, the description of jhana in the Vasudhi Maga is of the very deepest jhanas that are difficult to attain. And uh, it's quite possible that descriptions of jhana of such a rigorous sort uh, and, and people's difficulty achieving them uh, happened repeatedly in different places and different cultures at different times. Uh, Chan Buddhism, uh, Chan is uh, the Chinese equivalent for jhana in Pali or jhana in Sanskrit. And um, then, and, and so, uh, surely the practice of jhana carried over into Chinese Buddhism. And Zen is the Japanese version of Chan. But it seems like by the time that uh, Chinese Buddhism moved into Japan, even though they had retained the name Chan, that the practice itself <clears throat> uh, no longer resembled jhanas. So yeah, what happened along the way? That's kind of a mystery. And first of all, jhanas are an insight practice and they are a concentration practice uh, in the way that, that uh, they're described by the Buddha. And in the Majjhima Nikaya and uh, uh, Sutra 111 called One by One is a description of how Sariputta uh, attained full awakening using the jhanas as a practice. And uh, there are other references to, to jhanas leading to awakening. So there's no question that jhana is an insight practice or was an insight practice at that time. And not only that, we can see how it's supposed to be used as an insight practice. There's basically two things that one can do. And uh, that is to take the pre-jhanic state, the jhanic state, and the post-jhanic state uh, after coming arising from each jhana and compare them. Uh, and see the, um, uh, investigate their differences. So, uh, and, and this, this will uh, trigger a kind of information. It's to be done repeatedly with each of the jhanas, 
moving ahead through and then moving backwards, uh, moving up, moving down through the sequence of jhanas. And the other approach, uh, inside approach, involves working with uh, the, uh, in, in the fourth jhana, working in the fourth jhana state with uh, uh, the unconscious mind uh, directly. Um, but uh, so we do, we do know that that was a very common practice. We do know that uh, it is an insight practice and was used as an insight practice. Uh, but what happened to it? Now, just to qualify this a little bit, if you look at the descriptions of the jhana and the sutras, some of them are pretty liberal descriptions to the extent that sometimes uh, the term jhana was using just um, seemingly just to refer to uh, meditation uh, and not specifically the absorptions. So how do we interpret that? Uh, I, I kind of interpret that that um, to practice even the lightest jhanas, and this is one thing that I've come to believe, is that uh, the Buddha taught and the jhanas referred to in the, uh, in the suttas cover a, a huge range from very light to very deep jhanas. But then there's also the process that a person undergoes of uh, developing sufficient concentration and mindfulness to enter into those jhanas. So um, I think that's why I, it would not be surprising, even though somebody's intention was to enter the jhanas, but they weren't, didn't quite have the development of concentration and mindfulness necessary yet, that someone, uh, that, that someone might refer to their practice as jhana because that's where it's leading to. That's what, that's what the purpose is. Um, these are all speculations, but they're interesting ways to, to uh, think about what, what might have happened and uh, uh, so somewhere along the line, the jhanas that the Buddha described in detail and that are described as in a super hardcore way in the Vasudhimaga have, have gotten lost. One thing that shows this is there's a lot of other insight practices other than jhana. Why the Buddha doesn't mention more of them, I don't really know. Um, the Satipatthana, is of course uh, a collection of insight practices. Um, uh, what other thoughts do I have on, on this thing of jhanas? Well, there was a form of jhana that preceded the Buddha. Uh, they seemed to go from first jhana straight into the formless jhanas. And the Buddha's first teachers taught him uh, the jhanas of the uh, base of nothingness and the base of neither perception or non-perception. And he dismissed that practice of jhana. Um, we know that prior to his enlightenment, he recalled a spontaneous jhanic experience he had as a child. And what he refers to specifically about that is the uh, 
uh, joy and happiness that he experienced. And he says, uh, says, why should, he'd been practicing extreme asceticism. He says, why should I, why should I be afraid of the joy and happiness that arises uh, in, in this practice? You know, basically because it's not joy and happiness arising out of uh, pursuit of craving. Um, and so he, he seems to have used the jhanas himself. He kind of, what it sounds to me like, it's almost as though he discovered the other form jhanas. And, uh, and that's what he's describing throughout. There is a very interesting sutta where a Brahmin, and the Brahmin would have been familiar, most likely, with uh, entering into the deep state of concentration, concentrated attention that corresponds to uh, first form jhana, and then uh, the process of immediately going into the formless jhanas from there. So uh, he asks the Buddha, uh, he says, how is it that one can achieve awakening by using jhana practice? And the Buddha's response is by using jhana practice with sati, with mindfulness, okay? Now, a lot of people haven't been able to figure out what that means exactly, uh, but uh, I think I know exactly what it means. In the first jhana, what you dispense with uh, that allows you to practice the second, third, and fourth form jhanas is attention. Directed and sustained attention are the two jhana factors that fall away in the Buddha's system of jhana and lead to the second, third, and fourth form jhanas. And so um, the second, third, and fourth form jhanas are jhanas of pure mindfulness. And as I said, uh, uh, there are a couple of different ways of using the jhanas to achieve insight and awakening. Perhaps what got lost along the way, what certainly seems to be, you know, in, t uh, in terms of misconceptions of the middle way, uh, a, a very poor understanding of what, uh, what the word sati is intended to refer to. What on earth was the Buddha talking about when he said sati? And there's mind and life conferences in the last few years that have, have had that of trying to determine what that is as their sole topic. And there's re researchers, both scholars and, uh, and uh, laboratory researchers trying to figure out what sati is referring to. And uh, so it may be that the confusion about what sati was and its relationship to the jhanas is perhaps also plays a role in how they've fallen away. Um, but I don't know. It's just, it's very strange. How come so few people have for so long have been practicing the way the Buddha described? There does seem to be, of course, a great rebirth in jhana practice taking place, a tremendous interest. But uh, there's a tremendous amount of confusion being created as well, because Uba Ken decided to invent something that he called the Vipassana jhana. And uh, so now even the, uh, the original problem 10 years ago or 
15 years ago was trying to discern uh, whether only the jhanas, the very, very deep, difficult to attain jhanas of the Vasudhi Maga were the true jhanas, or whether there were lighter forms of jhana that people referred to as the Sutta jhanas, that was what the Buddha referred to. And uh, so now we've kind of straightened that out by sort of universally recognizing that jhana can take a variety of forms at a variety of different depths. But uh, now there's more confusion being introduced by, uh, by this other category of jhanas, that, uh, of, of things that are called jhanas. And, uh, anyway. <laughs> Those are, those are my comments and thoughts on that very interesting issue. Um, I learned a lot myself from John of Cactus and I encourage people to do it. Uh, I haven't focused on it in, in the way that Pauk or Lee Brasington have um, because I, I feel like I have a, uh, a more complete understanding of what's going on in these practices and that uh, uh, the important thing is that not only can somebody who follows the 10 stages uh, learn to practice all of these jhanas, but the most important thing is that uh, in the latter stages they have all of the benefits of jhana, but they're not, they don't have the constraints of jhana. And so, uh, yeah. And maybe, in fact, that was, that was what the Buddha was talking about in the suttas as well. And when he referred to jhanas, might have been people in a high state of samatha that, uh, uh, had, that shared the same characteristics of the jhanas themselves. Who knows? Interesting, interesting things to think about. Um, Thomas Bernardi's, uh, a few years ago, you reported promising results combining neurofeedback training and meditation in a 10-day retreat. What's your current uh, opinion on the combo? Thanks in advance and hope you're feeling well. So thank you for your good wishes, Thomas. Um, what we found is a specific kind of, of uh, neurofeedback that's very different uh, than other forms of uh, neurofeedback uh, called uh, uh, Zengar, it's made by a company called Neuroptimal. Um, and what we found that it was very effective in meditators in the early stages, uh, even up to about stage six, mostly seeming to make it easier for them to uh, pass through the stages, go through the necessary purifications in stage four and to have, uh, especially in those meditators which were uh, experiencing a very high level of distractibility or resistance to practicing, that it would help them through that. Um, it's time consuming and um, uh, we felt like it, it was very useful in combination, but probably not essential except uh, for uh, people who are really kind of stuck somewhere in the first uh, uh, say two to two to five 
stages. Um, but we just gave up on using it because it was just too, too time consuming. And uh, uh, we're encouraging, and there are other people, there are uh, some of the teachers in training who are making use of it. Uh, some have bought their own equipment. Um, and uh, I, I think it's potentially valuable adjunct to teaching. Um, with uh, uh, more resources to draw upon, I think it could be made more broadly available. Uh, that's, but that's, that's where I am with it. It's a good combo, especially for some people, but uh, it, the, the system is very expensive. And so uh, a lot of meditators would be precluded from getting their own system. And so, uh, and teachers like myself, you know, I, I don't have the resources, uh, human and otherwise, to make it available on a regular basis to people. So that's why I gave up that part, focused on the meditation and Dharma. Matthew Evans, until the 16th century, chairs were luxury items, and 2,500 years ago, they would have been rare. Perhaps the Buddha didn't have a chair, and that's the only reason he meditated while sitting on the floor. Uh, is there a significant advantage the cushion has over the chair other than portability? Senate argued that the lotus position is best for keeping the spine straight and therefore preventing dullness. But if I understand correctly from TMI, encountering dullness is inevitable anyway. Yes, this whole thing about posture. Um, there, yes, for the very few people, especially in our culture, who are capable of sitting in full lotus, it's probably the ideal way to, uh, to arrange your body so that you can focus more totally on uh, the mind and meditation practice. You still have perfect access to bodily sensations um, to the degree that you want and need to use them. Um, but... Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful position to sit in. Sitting on the floor has uh, some advantages uh, that uh, uh, similar to what full lotus has. Um, because um, your body is basically unsupported, um, it, uh, it, it's going to be more obvious. Uh, you're going to know when dullness is coming on, uh, partly by being sensitive to the changes that are taking place in your body. A chair is almost as good as sitting, as long as it's not a chair where you're resting against the back, but you're just sitting up straight on a chair. But you can, you can rest, you can meditate in a, when leaning back in a chair, and you can successfully overcome dullness. You can meditate in a recliner. You can meditate laying on a bed, laying down. So um, I, would, I would suggest that, uh, well, as I say in The Mind Illuminated, um, start out by finding the posture that works best for you and tweak it as you go along. But uh, what I mean by works best for you is that the body provides the least amount of distraction. 
and recognize that you're that uh, the human body is not designed to stay still for very long and so there's going to be discomfort associated with it it's an opportunity to work through suffering and have a major breakthrough in, in fourth path our fourth stage a major breakthrough in understanding the relationship between the mind and the body when it comes to physical pain you can overcome that second arrow in the that's described. Um, got a couple of minutes left. Here's Katiana's question. Yes. Um, thank you for the good wishes. Um, I wondered if you could give your understanding of the term Dharmakaya, especially in reference to creative and fulfillment meditative practice, much meta and medita. Okay. Um, yeah, there are so many different interpretations of uh, the term Dharmakaya and the emphasis that's given to it. Uh, Theravadan is quite different than Zen and likewise uh, you know, Tibetan Buddhism. Uh, but The most useful way that I find to think of that term is um, literally kaya is referring to the body and as embodiment of the dharma. So that's what I like, that's the way I like to think of it. Um, I think of it as being very closely related to the concept of Tathagatagarbha. And here my Yogacara leanings are probably coming out a bit. Um, uh, Tathagatagarbha basically means the embryonic Buddha that is, uh, is in all of us. It gets translated as Buddha nature and uh, uh, it's to be understood that that it's not that each person has his own or her own Buddha nature, but rather the the Buddha nature is in all of us. That there is the Tathagata Garbha, there is the embryonic Tathagata, the embryonic Buddha within each of us, and that uh, uh, it but the the dharma is one and so i think of it that way the, the the dharma is the dharma is suchness it's emptiness it's um uh it's nirvana uh but most especially it's it's corresponds to what uh, i like to use the word suchness for um as as uh the Tathagata Garbha, it's what will uh, help lead us. It is what is, it is the embryonic Buddha that's already within us, uh, which will, if we allow it to, will lead us to full awakening. And as that happens, then uh, we become an embodiment of the Dharma. And so in a sense, our Nirmana Kaya is the external 
uh, expression of the Dharmakaya, which is the nature of our inner experience. So. Thank you. Um, as you've been speaking, and what a wonderful, wonderful discussions uh, you've given us today of uh, the journey and the path to uh, awakening and all the uh, different elements from the questions and all the people to ask them. So again, the unity of that is so wonderful to see here and see for myself in terms of the concept of Nirmanakaya and Dharmakaya and they are Mahayana and, you know, um, Tibetan sort of, um, mm -hmm. but based in the Yogacara, which is very much where you, you also are. Um, so where our practice and the, this is the power of our practice where intention and the understanding of the Dharma and emptiness come together in terms of what we can actually create at the highest level on not just an earth reality, but a cosmic reality. Mm -hmm. And <clears throat> I, I don't know, in terms of Theravadan, you, you've addressed it very beautifully just now by what you said, but I, for uh, the Sangha here is so wonderful that we can have this astonishing power that comes through our open heart and through our ability to direct that intention of the open heart as portals of the cosmos, as opposed to anything egotistically minded that ourselves create. So I was just interested in terms of what you, what your thoughts were about that. And you answered that very beautifully. So thank you so much. You're welcome. You are welcome. So we've been at this for an hour and a half. Let me see how many, uh, quite a few questions here, I think. I think what we're going to have to do is, is we're going to have to do a catch-up Q&A sometime soon. Um, because both Federico and uh, William uh, Wallen's questions uh, could, could take a bit of time to Discuss. So I think it may be the best thing for us to um, close this session now. Uh, we've, we've certainly been at it for, we started a few minutes late, but uh, it's been about an hour and a half. So um, Ted, can, can we maybe schedule something uh, very shortly after I return from Massachusetts? And,